1: Recorded live.
2: episode of gov abuse
3: USA I think I have to do that again Hello everyone and welcome to another exciting episode of gov abuse USA Today we have a special guest Joel Sacco from Cleveland Ohio he is a former magistrate from Cuyahoga County 15 years in domestic relations court and is currently a private mediator specializing in family law And real estate for the last nine years and
0: that's right here's
3: Joel and and, and.
0: thank you Nancy and uh, thank you Dennis for the introduction Um, and you're right I have spent Nancy pretty much uh, my entire adult life working in the domestic relations court of Cuyahoga County or in or around the Cuyahoga County domestic relations court I actually started working uh, in the court, my first job out of college as a bailiff for a judge, and after watching the attorneys for a year or so, I thought, geez, that's something I could do, and decided to attend law school, went to night Law School, and uh, ultimately became a lawyer, passed the bar, and decided to practice domestic relations law. About three years of that was about all anyone could take. And uh, ultimately transferred, was offered a job as a magistrate, and as you said, became a magistrate in the court for many years.
3: Okay. Joel, can you tell the listeners what's involved in being a magistrate and what is the difference between a magistrate and
0: a judge? Sure. Um, well, a magistrate, in, and it differs from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, so I'll be talking about the state of Ohio here. But a magistrate is in the state of Ohio is essentially an appointed judge. You, uh, As a magistrate, you do the same basic work that a judge does in terms of resolving cases, trying to settle the cases on your docket. Um, You're generally assigned as a magistrate to work with a judge or a specific group of judges or work under those judges, so to speak, and those judges refer their cases to you. And then you handle the cases, which might involve handling pretrials or holding hearings or actually litigating the contested case. And then ultimately, if you have to decide the case, you make a decision as a magistrate which decision? And the di- difference between the decision that a magistrate makes and the decision that a judge makes is that if the magistrate heard the case and decided it, then as a litigant, you have the right to object to that magistrate's decision and ask the judge if the judge would reconsider the decision made by the magistrate um, and change it.
3: Okay, how would a judge decide? whether the case is going to be heard by a magistrate or if a judge just wants to hear it on his own
0: without the inclusion of a magistrate? You know, that's a good question. And and I often wondered myself how the judges would decide what cases they wanted to hear and what cases they would refer to their magistrate. I think it's somewhat random with the vast majority of cases because the vast majority of cases, when they're filed, the the judge gets his docket or her docket, And there's hundreds of cases on that docket. And as they come in, they don't really know much about the case other than, you know, it's filed as a complaint for divorce, let's say, or petition for dissolution of marriage, you know, or post decree motion. And they don't generally know the details of the case at the initial time of the initial filing. So I think they're randomly assigning a lot of the cases to magistrates. And generally, like in Cuyahoga County, um, a judge will have a couple of magistrates under them, one to hear trials and one to hear motions. And so they can assign their cases accordingly that way. If it's a trial case, they can assign it to their trial magistrate or if it's a post decree motion to their motion magistrate.
3: Now, what I find interesting, which I I hear a lot of people calling me and complaining because they have a magistrate deciding their case instead of a judge (laughs) But doesn't having a magistrate, the inclusion of a magistrate, wouldn't that be helpful because you would have as a litigant, wouldn't you have like an extra way to object instead of, you know, the judge decides it and then it's over. But if you don't like what the magistrate says, then it goes to the judge and you can, isn't that kind of like you have an extra appeal that you wouldn't otherwise have?
0: You do. You're right. You do have an extra opportunity to object or appeal, if you will. It's not a a formal legal appeal, but it's called an objection, and you do have the right to do that. On the other hand, it adds that extra layer to the litigation process, which may not be a pro. That may be a negative. I think most people's hope is to, if they do have to litigate, which as a mediator, my goal is to prevent people from litigating today, but when people do have to litigate, I think their goal is to only have to do it once and hope that if it's a judge making the decision, it's the decision that they can agree with, or if it's a magistrate making the decision, it's a decision they can largely agree with. Really, it's I, I would say it's more important, kind of the quality of the judge and the quality of the magistrate, rather than um, whether you actually are assigned initially to a judge or a magistrate like anything in the world there's good judges and there's good magistrates and then there's not so good judges and not so good magistrates i uh, i think we're lucky in cuyahoga county we have an exceptionally uh, high quality class of judges and magistrates in cuyahoga county domestic relations court and i know there'll be those who will disagree and you know have problems but in general they're great
3: yeah, on that one, I am definitely going to have to disagree because I haven't. <laughs> to...
0: <laughs> Sorry,
3: Joel. A lot, uh, yeah, well, you have to work with people in 50 states. I'll tell you one thing. <laughs> Cuyahoga County sucks because we have so many visiting assigned judges, and that causes a lot of problems for people, which I would love to get into a little bit later in the show. But just for the people who are just, like, starting out, I mean, we have a lot of people that listen you know that are Gov abuse members and even non Gov abuse members, you know who have been litigating for years and years, so they know a lot about this stuff. But for the beginners, I'd like to ask a couple of general questions that might help them out, uh, like what is the difference between
0: a divorce and a dissolution of marriage? Um, a, I call a dissolution of marriage kind of a uh, civilized divorce, but a divorce is the common law action to terminate marriages. And it's existed for years, and it's um, in the state of Ohio in order to obtain a divorce. uh, Traditionally and currently you need to show or prove grounds. And traditionally the grounds for a divorce, if your wife filed against husband or husband filed against wife for divorce, they'd file a complaint for divorce and alleged grounds such as gross neglect of duty, extreme cruelty, uh, habitual drunkenness, Incarceration in a penal institution, etc., and those are some of the grounds. And if you notice, they're all kind of negative grounds that somebody did their fault, somebody did something wrong, and it entitles the other uh, partner to a divorce.
3: Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because that is something that comes up actually pretty often. If you even know the answer, why? Does there have to be grounds? I mean, can't a couple, you know, because to have grounds, like you said, they're negative. Can't a couple just not want to be together? Because, in my opinion, if a couple just, you know, for whatever reason, they want to get divorced, why do they have to have it out there, you know, on public record, all the wise? How about if they just decide, you know, but you have to have grounds? Do you know why?
0: Well, it, it, because common law, that's the way that the law developed in the United States with grounds for divorce, but it has changed drastically in the last, uh, let's say, about approximately 40 years. Originally, the grounds were, like I said, kind of negative things, and but they are fault items. Now they've come out with, as I'm sure most people have heard of, no-fault divorces and no-fault grounds. And originally in the state of Ohio, the legislature adopted a um, no-fault ground of living separate and apart from your marriage partner for more than two years, that was changed a couple of decades ago to living separate and apart for more than one year. So if you're separated from your spouse for more than one year continuously, um, without interruption, you can obtain a divorce on that grounds. And then ultimately the legislature passed several decades ago another no-fault ground of incompatibility. So a couple can now come into court and get a divorce on the grounds that they're incompatible as long as one alleges they're incompatible and the other doesn't deny it. So there are some no-fault grounds. You mentioned the dissolution. The dissolution of marriage does not need any grounds at all. That's why I kind of call it a civilized divorce. No grounds at all are needed, fault or no fault. Instead, what you need is the couple to have reached an agreement and have previously signed a separation agreement, a written separation agreement, dividing all of their property. And if they have children, a parenting plan resolving the parenting of their children. And if they've signed those documents, they can attach those documents, their agreements, to a petition for dissolution that they both jointly petition the court for dissolution of the marriage. And the legislature, this, the dissolution of marriage, is a, we say a creature of statute. In other words, it's a, it's a creature of the law that the legislature passed. And you have to follow the specific law to obtain a dissolution, but if you do that, including the agreements that I just mentioned, which are the major part of the law, and you appear in court, both parties appear in court and acknowledge that they've entered into the agreement and that it's a fair agreement, the court and determine that the agreements they've entered into are fair, just, and equitable, and with respect to children in the best interests of the children, and award the people a dissolution merely because they both want the court to grant them a dissolution. So no grounds are necessary there.
3: Have you ever seen, or is it possible, that a couple goes in and, and they actually agree on everything? And can a
0: judge say, hey, wait, I don't think so? Yeah, they actually can because, um, and that's something that a lot of people aren't even aware of, that when they're entering into agreements, I work with a lot of couples in mediation to try to mediate settlements, and people will come up sometimes with settlements that I have to question whether or not a judge would find it to be fair, just, and equitable, In order for a court to adopt a separation agreement, in other words, an agreement between a couple which divides all of their assets and liabilities and awards spousal support, if appropriate, the court must find before it adopts that agreement that that agreement is fair, just, and equitable. Those are the words it uses in Ohio, fair, just, and equitable. And so the court is independently looking at the agreement that the couple entered into to determine that it's fair, just, and equitable. And if it's not fair, just, and equitable, the court can refuse to adopt that agreement. Likewise, with a parenting plan, court must determine that the parenting plan is in the best interests of the child or children. So could a court
3: actually, okay, the, the couple agrees on everything, and it's supposed to be no fault, yada, 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 Okay, could, would it, Could a court, like, sense that, like, maybe somebody's getting bullied into signing something?
0: Um, a court can. You know, it, more often than not, it's not a bullying, but that can be the case as well, Nancy. You're right. Somebody can be pressured into signing something and are unduly influenced, we might say, into signing something that they shouldn't have, and that might be grounds to not Adopt the agreement in the first place or ultimately if that was found later after the fact it might be grounds to set it aside Or we say vacate that order if the agreement had been adopted and later It was determined that the person was unduly influenced in entering into an agreement that they should not have entered into So that that can happen
3: Okay in a divorce um, How does the court actually determine? how to divide the couple's property if the court has to be the one to make the decision.
0: There's a, in the state of Ohio, there is a statute in Ohio. It's Ohio revised code 3105.171. And it's um, that statute or that law basically defines how a court has to divide marital property. And it defines what is marital property and what is separate property. Essentially, in the state of Ohio and in most states, there's two, when you're talking about divorce, there's two types of property there's marital property and separate property. Marital property is property that was acquired by either or both of the parties during the course of the marriage and is divisible in a divorce, and separate property is property that was either owned by a property prior to the marriage or was gifted to only one party or was inherited by only one party. And generally that separate property is returned to the party whose separate property it is. So if you owned a chair prior to the marriage or you owned a car prior to the marriage and you still own that chair or that car or that bank account, that would be your separate property. Premarital property is an example of that. So the the court court looks at that statute and determines how to divide the property. First it determines what's marital and what's separate, then it determines how to divide it.
3: Well, how about like California? I know, you know, you're familiar with Ohio law. Yeah, but right. like in California it goes fifty fifty, California if you even know. Um you know, is that fifty fifty including what they had before they got married Because
0: <laughs> no, you said no, well, separate the
3: the the, yeah, the difference between two different in kinds of
0: property. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm not an expert in California law, so I, I don't want to get in trouble with uh, California attorneys. But, uh, no, I believe that in California, likewise, there is um, there's marital and separate property as well. Just because you married someone, that does not mean that everything that they owned prior to that date, all of a sudden you're entitled to half of it. And actually, in the state of Ohio, we don't divide and the court doesn't divide if, you know, to further answer your question before about how a court divides property. It's not dividing the property equally. The law says that the property has to be divided equitably or an equity state and an equitable distribution state. So in the state of Ohio, the court must determine what an equitable division of that property is, which essentially means fair. And there was a case many years ago in the state of Ohio. It was a CHERRY case, C-H-E-R-R-Y, CHERRY versus CHERRY divorce. And that Supreme Court decision essentially said that in order to arrive at an equitable division of property, the court should first start with an equal division and then vary from that equal division to achieve equity. And... um the to achieve equity then is based upon factors that the court felt would be appropriate in dividing that property. Okay. Yeah. That's, I think that's very helpful to some people. Yeah, um, and some, Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. All right. No, I was just going to add and sometimes the court, well, you know, you asked about uh, separate property versus marital property and sometimes a court can, award a party separate property to the other person so maybe husband owned a bank account prior to the marriage and that bank account still exists now at the time of divorce normally you might think that the husband would receive that bank account that he owned primarily maritally as his separate property but a court if it finds financial misconduct that was committed by the husband in this case we're saying the court can award it, we call it a dis, make a distributive award, and award or distribute that separate property of the husband to the wife. So let's say, for instance, the husband uh, had a gambling problem and went to Las Vegas repeatedly, and or, or uh, the Cleveland Casino now, but lost a lot of marital property gambling, or maybe a drug problem and spent a lot of money on marital money on drugs, a court does have the authority to make a distributive award and consider separate property in that division. But before doing that, the court must find that financial misconduct generally in the state of Ohio.
3: Okay, excellent. Um, okay, now you you used to be a magistrate and you've you know, been the, doing mediation for nine years. Um, mediation is kind of new. Basically, in Ohio, you know, unlike everything else. Um, Can you tell everybody what exactly is mediation? And then I have a couple of follow up questions on that. I mean, what exactly do you do, and how
0: does somebody get to mediation? Okay. Um, Mediation is an out of court process where a neutral third party, neutral third party person, the mediator, acts to facilitate a settlement between the two parties. If it's domestic mediation, then you're generally working with the husband and the wife or the ex-husband and the wife if it's if they're already divorced, and then you're talking about parenting. Um, but uh, the mediator is a third-party neutral. He's not or he or she is not on the husband's side, not on the wife's side. They're frequently attorneys, and the attorney, though, does not represent either party. The attorney mediator acts as a third-party neutral, again, whose job is to help facilitate a settlement. The mediator does not have the authority to make decisions if the couple can't reach their own agreement. They can make suggestions to the couple. Um, to try to help arrive at a settlement, but they can't order or tell the the party what the agreement is going to be. If the couple does not enter into an agreement, then the mediation has not succeeded.
3: Okay, now for mediation,
0: okay, let's say if I'm looking at
3: a divorce now, what if I've never heard of mediation? Will a court ever
0: suggest mediation? Uh Boy, will they ever? Yes, yeah, sometimes they do. The courts are getting better and better with uh, recommending mediation. For instance, the Cuyahoga County Court of Common Pleas uh, Domestic Relations Division has a mediation department. It's a relatively small department, but it's it's growing, and it's uh, it's a great thing down there. It's one of the reasons why I said that. I really think the court's got some very good judges down there because it's that's an example of a program that the – um, judges put together, the administrative judge down there, Diane Palos, um, was instrumental in putting together a mediation department. And, uh, But will they necessarily tell you that that is your option? The court, probably not. Your attorney might tell you that. That would be something that you might want to discuss if you were in litigation. I've got to
3: break in on this one. Is there any lawyer in their right mind who would ever suggest mediation? Wouldn't that like not send their kids to college with the litigants money?
0: Uh, in other words, in other words, does a lawyer lose money by referring their cases out to a mediator? Uh, you know, yes, maybe. Uh, but you know, this is my, this is my take on it. having practiced and worked as a magistrate and now working uh, as a mediator. It, you don't, as a mediator well in the vast majority of my domestic mediations there is not an att- the attorneys are not present you're mediating with the parties and if you reach agreements the parties don't sign the agreements on the spot instead you read them back read the agreement back to them and send it then out in a written form ultimately usually by internet now by email and word form and then the attorneys go over it with their clients. So there's still a role for attorneys in this process, and it's a big one throughout the process. I mean, let's keep in mind that the agreement that you're reaching with a mediator, if it's a separation agreement or a parenting plan, is going to be one of the most important agreements that you'll enter into in your life. And any mediator wouldn't be doing their job right, I don't think, if they didn't at least suggest that. The parties consult with an attorney, so maybe you don't spend the ten or twenty thousand dollars that you might have spent with the attorney. Maybe you only spend one or two thousand dollars with the attorney instead if you if you've successfully mediated your case. But there's still a role for the attorneys. So yes, attorneys may not make as much money on every single case, but. Attorneys who are busy and practice in this area understand the value because the role of the mediator is to do kind of the uh, uh, the down and dirty work, so to speak, of, you know, working with the parties and trying to put together an agreement. And that's something that is difficult when you have two parties and two attorneys together. Just It works better in the mediation process, and then the parties can still review it with their attorneys.
3: Yeah, but isn't that, like, totally counterproductive to what everyone's been doing for a zillion years? I mean, through mediation, wouldn't we have, you know, iron workers' kids going to college instead of lawyers' kids going to college, you know, because of people (laughs) like you? (laughs) 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 I mean, that'll change the whole course of, you know, the United States. (laughs) uh, You
0: know, uh, what you're saying is true to this extent, yes. <laughs> that because I'm I'm a mediator I am biased I went into this position of being a mediator because I strongly believe it is the best way to resolve the vast majority of cases certain cases do have to be litigated but the vast majority of divorces and post decree parenting issues can be resolved out of court with less cost and it's yeah. a big money saver for most couples now it you know it can cost more because. Keep in mind, the job of the mediator is to facilitate an agreement. If the couple doesn't reach an agreement, they'll still pay for the mediation substantially less than they'd be paying a couple of, you know, two of different attorneys. But they'll still pay for the mediation and then may still have to uh, pay attorneys. So it can result in additional costs, but the reality is that's in the vast minority of cases that it results in additional costs. Because my experience is that the worst that happens in mediation, the worst thing that's going to happen is that, let's say we decide we've got a dozen issues to resolve in mediation. The worst that usually happens is we only resolve 10 or 11 of them. Maybe we didn't settle every single issue, but we settled a whole bunch of them. And if nothing else, that usually results in less attorney time that the parties have to pay for. So, So, you know, of course I'm biased, but in my biased opinion, mediation is a win-win for just about everyone involved. It's certainly a win-win for the litigants, and it's certainly, you know, in my opinion it's a win for the attorneys because it allows them to concentrate on their more difficult legal issues and cases that should be litigated um, and dispensing the legal advice that they're, you know, paid so well to do.
3: Um, I think you pretty much answered what would have been my next question, I, but you can still <laughs> answer it if you want. Um, sure. Which, it's a double question. How is mediation different than litigation, and also how is mediation
0: different than arbitration? Oh, okay. Uh, but you may
3: also want to say what arbitration is, because a lot of people don't know that either.
0: Sure. Um, mediation is different from litigation in that um, it's – you're, tur- you're generally not with your attorneys, though you can be. You don't have somebody who's deciding the case for you. Instead, you have somebody who's facilitating an agreement. And uh, it's much, it takes much less time. Generally, mediations are done in a matter of a couple of sessions, a couple to a few sessions, which are scheduled by agreement of the parties. It's a voluntary process 90% of the time. Um, is so a lawyer is a
3: lawyer allowed so, to
0: come in during the mediation sentence? Um, if, if in advance a lo- the lawyers contact me and say they, they want to sit in with their clients, they can. You're not going to have one party with a with a lawyer and the other party without. So it's 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 usually 99 times out of 100 um, you have no lawyers. But if once in a while, I will have both lawyers. And they can come in and sit in on uh, the mediation. It's my experience when that happens. It usually kind of becomes a negotiation, which was kind of more the old way we'd settle cases in court prior to mediation training.
3: Okay, you know what? I actually have another one in here. Um, Okay, let's say the couple's in mediation. It's just the, the two parties and the mediator, right? Okay, yep. Certain information... Okay, let's say you you said you could settle like 9 out of 10 or whatever you said. Okay, there's the one issue left. Information that comes out during mediation, couldn't that be used against the other party in a litigation later?
0: Is there any protection for that? That's a great question. There is protection for it. By statute, by law, the legislature of the state of Ohio has made uh, mediation a confidential process. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, the husband won't hear what the wife's saying or the wife won't hear what the husband's saying because, like you said, all three of you are generally sitting around a round table and negotiating or um, mediating these issues, the issues that you agreed had to be mediated. Um, And you throw your
3: cards out there. Wouldn't that be a little scary to throw your cards out there for fear that, you know, I mean, if you needed that card, you know, in litigation? (laughs)
0: well there there is sometimes a little bit of holding things back, but um in terms of let's say you can't go into let's say you don't settle the case then in mediation and you go into litigation you can't under the rules of evidence say or under the statutes relating to mediation say something like, well, he offered better in mediation, or she, she you know, offered to pay more during uh, mediation or to give more time on parenting during mediation. That is all non-admissible. Also, any of the mediator's notes are non-admissible in court. Also, the mediator, you can't subpoena the mediator into court. Well, you can, but it should, at least my reading of the statute, is that the subpoena would be quashed or set aside by the judge. So um, what goes on in mediation while you hear it, you know, as a spouse or an ex-spouse, as a parent, you'll hear what your ex is saying, um, but you can't use it in court. It's a confidential process to that extent, and the notes of the mediator aren't admissible, and the report of the mediator is not admissible in court. It's, it's made that way intentionally by the legislature to encourage people to open up and encourage people to make proposals. That's, that's one of the great things about mediation is it, is it is a process that is informal, and if done right, people should feel comfortable making those proposals. And actually, you can do a lot more in mediation than just settle cases.
3: Why, I'm glad I asked that question, wow, that that answered a lot. <laughs> I mean, anybody who had doubts about mediation and fears, I mean, that just took all the fears that I would have personally had away. so
0: I, great information there, Joel. Um, Thank you. mediation yeah. It's a great process. It really is. I can't say enough about it. Like I, you know, as I tell everybody, I'm biased because I am a mediator and I consider myself a mediator. now, I don't uh, practice law um, any further anymore because I just really believe strongly that mediation is the best way for the vast majority of domestic cases to resolve themselves. I really believe that.
3: Okay, you know what, and there's another, there's a, what's relatively a new term to something that's actually been going on a little bit, quite, well, in most cases, the, the tougher cases. Parenting coordinating. Now they used to call this parenting coordinating, A uh, parenting plan that the judge would make everybody sign. And now they have actually have people called parenting coordinators,
4: uh, which, you know, I don't
3: know about the other states, but I know in Ohio this is pretty relatively new. So, yeah, if you know about that, if you want to explain anything about that.
4: Yes.
0: um, Parenting coordination is, um, we were talking earlier, Nancy, before the show about guardian ad litems. And guardian ad litem are kind of an extra person for the children in cases of conflict where the court determines that children should have an extra representative so they can appoint a guardian ad litem. Well, in high conflict parenting cases, the court in the state of Ohio also now has the authority to appoint a parenting coordinator. And again, it's done in high conflict cases, not in cases where the parties are getting along pretty well, but where cases that keep, seem to keep coming back to court, the court might appoint a, generally an attorney. It can be a counselor as well. Um, like the but,
3: cases that where people keep making false allegations against each other or just keep bringing issues to yeah. court,
0: almost vexatious yeah, litigation. Yeah, that would be an example. Exactly. You know, cases, we used to call them our career cases when I worked as a magistrate, you'd be like, Oh, the the Joneses are back, you know, because if they got divorced when their children were one or two years old, you know, they could be coming into court for 16, 17, 18 years just on parenting issues. And it's pretty much the majority of someone's career working in the court. And, uh, So yeah, you you do get both cases and that would be an example of a time where the court might appoint a parenting coordinator. And the parenting coordinator now, you have to be trained and it's the first year that the statute, since the statute has passed, um, or the Supreme Court has adopted rules actually for a parenting coordinator in the state of Ohio. And those rules provide that they have to attend training and what, what could you tell it. everyone what, what's involved in training? Um, well, I attended this year earlier this year a training in Columbus put on by the Supreme Court of Ohio on parenting coordinating, and, and in other words, on how to deal with high-conflict parents. And the basis of the process, you have to first be a mediator. That's another requirement. And because the basis of the process is to try to mediate agreements with the high-conflict parents. But the difference between mediation and parenting coordination, or one of the differences, is that if you are a parenting coordinator and you are unsuccessful at mediating a settlement or an agreement between the parents, you have the right to actually make a decision. And the limits of your decision, or you know, are how much you can decide on, or what you can decide on, is generally spelled out in the order appointing you. Um, but you, um, God, I have to break in here on this
3: one. Um, appointing, go ahead. Yeah. Does yes. the couple request the parenting coordinator, or does the court order it?
0: It can be well. The court ultimately will order it, but it can be requested by one couple or both as well. They could agree to it, or one couple through their attorney could ask for the parenting uh, coordinator to be assigned, and then an order will go on appointing that person. Now, who pays for this parenting coordinator? Of course, the parties do. There's no separate fund to pay for parenting coordinators that I'm aware of, at least not in the state of Ohio. And it is somewhat a controversial process because you are, you know, legally, because you are giving the right to make a decision affecting the kids to that parenting coordinator. The court in its order is assigning John Doe, let's say, to act as parenting coordinator and giving that person the authority to make decisions. In other words, that person becomes kind of a quasi... Judge! In in a quasi-judicial capacity. And some states, for instance, I believe the state of Pennsylvania um, actually found that to be illegal. We'll not allow parents. That most certainly sounds illegal. <laughs> yeah, well, the state of Ohio and in most states, um, parenting coordinator, the process is expanding rather than contracting because the belief is that it's another method. It's another method of alternative dispute resolution, like mediation, to try to help keep people out of litigation. And, Usually, anytime you can do that, it's a win for the parties. You know, in terms they save money, they save time, they save heartache.
3: Well, they They stay out of litigation by a a non
0: judge. (laughs) Yeah, making, but making
4: judgments.
0: (laughs) But make yeah, a non judge making the decision. You're right, and so it could be a situation where it goes too far. Of course, under the under their order as well, they'll have appeal rights back to the court. So if this non-judge makes a decision they don't like, they can go back to the court and ask the court to review it as well. Oh, isn't uh, that beautiful? I mean, not only
3: are they litigating and have to go in front of the judge, then they have an extra person that they have to litigate against to go in front of the judge. Yeah,
0: and they're – there is, you're right, Nancy, and there is a downside <laughs> to so many of these processes. But the upside is intended to be, let's keep these people out of court and try to settle the the issues that they have as frequently as we can, at least, in a mediation style of a process, as opposed to a litigation style of process. Or um, if the parenting coordinator can't, successfully mediate a solution, kind of in an arbitration style. In other words, a arbitration, you mentioned before, the arbitrator can make a decision, but it's kind of an abbreviated short trial rather than a full-blown trial. With but analysis. even
3: with an arbitrator, you go in front, you know, nobody orders arbitration, or do they?
0: I mean, the parties say, hey, I'd rather go generally. through
3: arbitration, which is normally for corporate.
0: Right, generally not done in domestic relations, at least not in the state of Ohio. Very, very little arbitration going on.
3: Unlike, the, as you were saying, the parenting coordinator is most often appointed by the court. So you're for, this person is forced on you, unlike arbitration where you're willingly going well, into it.
0: Well, not always forced on you because it very well, if the court orders it and you're stuck. Yeah, <laughs> but very frequently <laughs> it's done as part of a parenting plan agreed to by the parents. They may even pick the person. Maybe they don't know the people who are legitimate parenting coordinators, um, you know, are authorized to act as parenting coordinators, but their attorneys might. So their attorneys could say, you know, well, you might point Joel Sacco or, you know, Mary Smith or John Doe on this case as your parenting coordinator. So the court adopts it, but very frequently it's also an agreed order by the parents as well. So they can't agree because it makes sense. In certain situations, it does add another layer, but if it's a high-conflict case, that layer may be a valuable layer to preventing litigation. Okay, you know what, speaking of litigation, um,
3: let's talk about same-sex marriage for a minute in Ohio. (laughs) I mean, first of all, I'm just going to throw my own opinion out there that, you know, I think that heterosexuals should not be allowed to get married. <laughs> I just want to throw that out there. But well, <laughs> can two know, people have, of the same my, sex get a divorce in Ohio?
0: <laughs> First, can they get yeah, married well, in Ohio, have, and can they get divorced in Ohio? I have my buddy who says, you know, years ago, you're aware, Nancy, I did a radio show, and my co-host said, uh, geez, are you kidding? I think that uh, same we should definitely allow same-sex marriages. They should that they should have, gay people should have to suffer just like straight people do.
4: <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> That's his <take> on it. <laughs> But But being serious about it, um, it, it,
3: it. Where where you know your your buddy's candy obviously has a little bit of vicious will in his heart because I'm <laughs> thinking don't let anybody get married so nobody has to go through it where your buddy's saying oh yeah you know, go go ahead let them <laughs> that, I say yeah, protect that's... everybody keep everybody out of court don't let anyone get married <laughs> you're right
0: <laughs> they should have but can, to but, can, but, can they,
3: but I'm sorry go ahead
0: <laughs> no go
3: ahead I was just uh, being wise go on <laughs> um, can can they, can same sex people get married in Ohio and can they get divorced in Ohio
0: no and uh, that's a very timely issue but uh, currently same-sex people cannot uh, get married in the state of Ohio and uh, the case is before the Supreme Court right now as to whether or not they will that will change in the future but uh, and it was actually the case um, Supreme Court just heard arguments several weeks ago in April involving a same-sex marriage. Um, The cases will relate to Ohio, Kentucky, Michigan, and Tennessee. And essentially what the court's going to be determining is the Supreme Court is going to be determining is whether or not, a state state can ban ban same-sex marriages or bans of same-sex marriages constitutional,
4: and then then also
0: the Supreme Court will likely be deciding um, should states with a ban on same-sex marriages be forced to recognize the um, marriage of of same-sex people from other states.
4: states. In other Other words,
0: under the full faith and credit clause of the Constitution, if somebody's married legally in, in say, California, should Ohio Ohio be required to recognize that? that. So So that's currently uh, before the Supreme Court. Huge issue. Uh, We can anticipate the decision later this summer on that case, and the Supreme Court can decide those two issues. One should... These states' bans on same-sex marriage be upheld, or are they unconstitutional? Court could rule either way. And likewise, does a state have to recognize another state's marriage of same-sex couples? A court can rule either way on that as well. Yeah, and you know what?
3: Recently, well, fairly recently, a few months back, I actually had a couple, same-sex couple, couple guys... They were act, they got married in one state, they moved to another state, became actual residents of the other state, but were not allowed to, even though they were residents, they were not allowed to get a divorce.
0: <laughs> like,
3: See, then, really?
0: <laughs> that's, that is, of course, a problem. You know, there's good arguments on both sides of this issue. But, you know, the, in the argument um, opposed to permitting same-sex marriage, marriages is that, and there's a variety of arguments, but essentially one of them is that this is a matter that should be left up to the states and left up to the people to decide so that there could be um, a situation that we presently have in the United States where sa- some states recognize same-sex marriages and some states do not. But that, of course, creates problems, um, as you just described, when somebody moves to another state. And that is part of the reason why this is going all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court's going to have to decide if um, allowing that type of state-by-state process to continue, whether that is constitutional or not, or whether... Um, the court's going to find that no same sex couples have a constitutional right to marry, period good argument you know, you know,
3: yeah, but you know what I just you know I don't get it why same sex couples i they didn't even realize you know how good they had it. they had that protection that they were not allowed to get stupid you know have have that excited moment and run off to Vegas, you know, and then you know go buy somebody' a house, you know. Like heterosexuals do, they, they had their protection, and they're like literally voting and protesting to give away their protection. <laughs> but that's you know, they, <laughs> that's just me.
0: <laughs> well, you know, in in 2004, what happened was in Ohio, um, State Issue One went through, and that was the constitutional amendment that excluded same-sex couples from marriages and bars them from attaining any other form of family status in the state. But many cities, especially the larger ones like Cleveland, Toledo, Columbus, Dayton, Cincinnati, um, offer domestic partnership registries for same sex couples.
3: Right now, isn't that contrary? How can they allow that, but not allow them to get married?
0: uh, Well, it's because it's not in marriage. Right, but isn't that kind of contrary? Well, the, the being married implies a whole set of different um, things that not being married implies legally. And for instance, this case right now, that's going to the Supreme court, um, is a case on I'm trying to find the gentleman's name. Um, Obergefeller, and I'm not sure if I pronouncing it right, but O B E R G E F E L L. And he was in Cincinnati. And his um, husband died and he was not permitted to be included on the death certificate. And that is where the case emanates from and it's going to the Supreme court because there's a whole bunch of these things, you know, that a bunch of legal rights that you may lose by not being married that you do lose. And so the question is, or one of the questions that the Supreme Court might be deciding is does the Equal Protection um, Clause of the U.S. Constitution demand that same-sex couples be permitted the same legal rights as heterosexual couples?
3: You know what? Yeah, if you if you know the answer to this question, it's kind of a strange one because I just thought of it. <laughs> um, if I don't know, I'll make it up. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. The lawyer in you's coming out. <laughs> <laughs> right. Nice, nice, Joel. <laughs> um, okay, we're talking pre-80s here. You know, back when they had common law marriage. Right. And I even know somebody who never got married, but because he got married... During the common law time, he was he married actually, common a few law. years He actually had to get divorced.
0: Yeah, but, oh, yeah. If you're married common law at any point in time, that until common law marriages were outlawed in, in Ohio, but if you were married by a common law marriage prior to that date, that's a valid marriage.
3: Yeah, I thought that was insane. It's like, wow, you never got married, but you had to go through all of it.
0: <laughs> yeah, and the common law marriage. You know, there was a set of specific factors that you had to follow. The hardest one generally being what they called the agreement in presenti. In other words, you actually agreed with your spouse that you were going to consider yourselves married. There might have been a little ceremony. You might have exchanged rings. You might have, you know, those types of things. My buddy didn't even do that. (laughs) And you held yourself out to the... Uh, community as being married, so friends, neighbors, whatever felt or thought or believed you were married. So those were some of the um, factors or requirements for common uh, common-law marriages, but... They filed taxes together, that was their crime.
3: Uh, yeah, right, you
0: filed joint taxes and sometimes... And he got to pay for 10 years for it. <laughs> right, because sometimes it was beneficial financially. For yeah, was it the really beneficial jointly. for
3: the last ten years that, or nine years that he, that he had to pay and her big money? It was like, was yeah. the taxes really worth it, that few dollars you got back, dummy? Then <laughs> <laughs> he had to go
0: through the divorce. Yeah, and, and I'm sure, as you say, they, uh, if he didn't want to say they were married by common law, and she did, she would have uh, brought those joint tax returns before the court. Right. That alone doesn't necessarily prove it. But that's certainly good evidence in support of a common-law marriage. But what is interesting is what you said before, Nancy, is that even after the state of Ohio determined that it would not allow any other common-law marriages, that did not invalidate anyone who was married by a common-law prior to then. Right. Um, you know what,
3: before I went off on that tangent, because that wasn't even where I was going, but you know me. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> I get going. <laughs> I'm on speed. Wow, um, oh God, I just lost the. What's the name of the one that you're allowed to the, the domestic partnership? What would yeah, be? The, what is the difference right. between domestic partnership and the the common common law of marriage? I mean, obviously, one is marriage, one is not. But yeah. I mean, what is there? A It seems like there. There's like almost more evidence that you're a couple in a. Domestic partnership than there
0: would be in common law you well,
3: know, that just, they used to have
0: common law marriage you know and 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 I'm not an expert on this, so you know i I am kind of making this up not to be wise, but you know there's the difference is, as you said, in one case... And just so married everyone knows, he's another, not sitting
3: around making things up. Anything may be opinion, but he's not sitting around making stuff up. I want right. to <laughs> clarify that so nobody
0: thinks that <laughs> the things you've said aren't valid. <laughs> no, I, this is the first thing I'm making up. <laughs> but, now the reality is, is that the registry does show and portrays that... Um, that the two people are a couple, but it does not provide the protections or the legal guarantees that a marriage does. So it's just, they're just two different legal creatures. And um, if you're on the gay rights side of this, you say that present, you know, having a double standard is not constitutional, that it violates equal protection. And so that will be one argument that, well, it's already been made before the Supreme Court.
3: Yeah, and you know what? Um, what was it you were telling me about uh, what Groucho Marx thought about this, about the divorce? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: I had to throw it you in might, there. One of my favorite,
0: I told you this before, one of my favorite, yeah, favorite lines Groucho Marx said was, uh, and I, I attribute this to Groucho Marx, he, he pointed out that he was married by a judge, but he should have asked for a jury.
3: <laughs> and that was the first time I ever heard that, and I'm going to use that at least. And I'm going to use that at least once a week. That's the first time I heard that today. <laughs> I was married by
0: a judge. I should have asked for a jury.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I think that is awesome. I'm sure everybody, all two people listening. <laughs> I don't know how many people are listening. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, here's another one. How does a divorce court determine the amount of child support payment
0: Um, that a parent has to pay? Yeah, now that's a little more complex. Um, Actually, you know, from an attorney's standpoint, it's easier because there's actually, in the state of Ohio, child support guidelines. formula there's a formula as they call it or a computer program it's kind of like working through a tax return you start with the gross income of the mother and the gross income of the father you total them together they get certain pluses and minuses like deductions kind of on a uh, a tax return and uh, and ultimately you determine the percentage of the total income that each parent earns and uh, Then you look at a chart, which it's all done by computer nowadays, but this is essentially how it works. Then you look at that income as compared to a chart, which sets forth what the support should be based on the number of children that you have. And uh, ultimately, that chart kicks out a number, which is a portion between the parents in an income shares method in other words, based upon the percentage of the total income that each earns, and uh, the appropriate parent, the non-residential parent generally in the state of Ohio is ordered to pay child support, and then you do have a right to deviate from the amount of child support calculated pursuant to the Ohio Child Support Guidelines. In other words, a couple can agree to change the amount that was calculated pursuant to the Ohio Child Support Guidelines, and frequently parties do. You have to include on the guidelines the reasons why you're doing it and valid reasons to deviate from the amount calculated pursuant to the um, Child Support Guidelines include things like you have uh, 50-50 sharing of time or you have significant parenting time, um, even if it's not 50-50, that you've already, the the parents have... Um, determined a, an expense-sharing agreement so that they're already dividing 50-50 or in some other proportion, medical expenses, extracurricular activities, um, clothing expenses, etc. so that the party has already divided up many of the expenses um, in a way agreeable to them. So that would be a reason to deviate. So, long answer to your question, uh, child support is determined by a guideline calculation, but it can also be determined by a couple who are agreeing on things. Well, agreeing
3: is always the better way to go, but when they don't, and then, okay, uh, I'm going to go around this backwards. Okay, Okay, there was a case in New Jersey, not that, maybe, maybe two years ago. And it was a female. She was ordered to pay child support. And it was 1500 a month, somewhere, somewhere around $15. Uh, she lost her job, and she had one of those like pharmaceutical jobs, something like that, you know, that wasn't that easy to get another one of. So then she runs out of unemployment. And so then she starts selling all her jewelry and everything, and she's in arrears. She could prove, you know, how many places she put in applications, And Mm -hmm. she went to jail because she was in arrears of child support and the court would not allow. Because they go back on this, um, like, I don't know, was it three or five years or something for what they think you're capable of making? But if the jobs aren't there, you're in trouble. If you you want to shed any light on this one.
0: Yeah, I think what, you know, you're looking back three or five years, what you're talking about there is probably imputed income. I said before that when you're determining the amount of child support pursuant to the child support guidelines, you first look at the gross income of the father and the gross income of the mother. Well, let's say one of the parents had been earning, you know, $45,000 a year, but they quit their job or they just lost it or um, they've taken a job earning less at this point the court does have a right to impute they call it i m p u t e impute income to one parent or not so the court could say well even though you're only earning $10,000 right now you're capable of earning 45,000 and we're going to calculate the child support based upon your earning 45,000 what you should be earning that's an imputed level of income And so if you're not actually earning that, that can be an issue. As far as going to jail, you know, that that has to do with contempt. In the state of Ohio, a court judge has the authority to put someone in jail for contempt of court. And a contempt is a flagrant violation of a court order. So if you have a court order to pay child support and you fail to pay it, it may be contemptuous but it may not be in other words if you're not working and you and you come into court and you validly show i just can't afford it and i've tried and i've tried to you know get jobs etc you're still going to owe the support that you didn't pay and you might even owe it with interest but you're technically Under the facts that I was trying to describe, they're not in contempt of court. You're not willfully and flagrantly violating that order of court. You don't have a choice. I can't pay it. It's an impossibility. Compliance with the order is an impossibility for me. So that can be a defense to a contempt. So if they put her in jail for failure to pay child support, they must have believed that um, she was willfully failing to pay that child support order when she could have.
3: And you know what, well, um, I was very involved that in that found. case. And do you know what one of the reasons was? <laughs> How she dressed no. when she came to court. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I, they <thought laughs> they actually said that nice. to me.
0: Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's needless to say supposed to be based upon evidence and the evidence of her ability to pay or not. But, you know, it, it's not 100% just ability. Like I was saying, imputing, you know, you could be um, voluntarily und- underemployed or unemployed where the income's imputed. And then if you fail to search for a job, a court could say that you are still willfully violating it because even though you don't have the money, you could have the money.
3: Yeah, I mean, you would be absolutely shocked at how many times judges will not lower. The amount of child support. Oh, and you know what? Here's something I really want to ask you. Sure. Okay, so you're looking at jail, right?
1: I'm looking for, at j- I hope for not. support.
3: Ah. <laughs> <laughs> a litigant. <Okay. laughs> I'm sorry about that. <laughs> a a litigant is looking at jail time for you know non-payment of support or arrears okay. or whatever. Yeah. Why are they, and I? And it's in all states, not allowed to have a jury. That is a criminal offense. You're going to jail. We're talking about prison, and I have met many people, who have done prison time for support, yeah. but they don't get a jury trial.
0: Yeah. Um, isn't it that isn't a
3: constitutional would... violation.
0: I was going to just say that I would get, and I don't know the answer to that, but I would guess that that is in keeping with the constitution of the Ohio, of the state of Ohio, that it, this is not technically a criminal, um, case, even though it is kind of a quasi criminal action, as you say, because a court can put you in jail for it, but it's, it's more considered civil and it's a civil, um, the term I'm looking for, it's a civil remedy to the failure to pay support, and you're really going to jail for violating the order of the court, not for the failure to pay. The failure to pay is more a contractual issue, and so you owe it. If you owe the money, you owe the money. It's a mathematical calculation. What should you have paid minus what you paid equals what you owe. So that's a mathematical calculation, and you might owe that amount civilly. Yeah,
3: and prison is but a mathematical
0: the, as well, yeah, considering well, how many guys are going to be,
3: you know, you know, turning you into a girl once you hit prison because yeah, you could have a jury of your peers
0: to, vote on it. That comes in because you failed to abide by the court order. You flagrantly or willfully violated that court order.
3: Right, I get that part. The part I don't yeah. get is why there are no juries allowed for this. Why
0: there's no... I, I, I can't tell you the exact answer where that is in the law that states that you're not entitled to a jury in that type of a situation. But you are correct. You are not.
3: I mean, that's just that is just straight up wrong, in my opinion. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, I i mean, I guess, you know, being entitled might be one thing. But, you know, I, I, I and I and I do hear the horror stories. From a lot of people, and having done a radio show—not an internet radio, but you know, a live call-in radio show—we received many calls from people who were dismayed with things the court had done. But that's why I started out early on and said that I am very impressed with you know the judges in the court because I think they usually, at least in Cuyahoga County, are making the right answers. But that's not always, and this is a very difficult area to work in. You can, you know, fret and put a lot of thought and a lot of work into a decision that you think is fair. And chances are, somebody, if not both parties, aren't going to like it and may think that they weren't treated fairly. So it's a it's a tough business to work in to make people satisfied. And. That's why, and having worked there, maybe I'm biased too because uh, I I give the court the benefit of the doubt because I think that they are really trying hard to do their best, but it's sometimes a thankless job. So while I empathize with the people going through the court in a difficult situation and who come out with um, solutions and results that they don't consider good for their family or good for their children and uh, and unfair... It's kind of a – it's part of the reason I went into mediation because it's – you become casualties of the litigation system. The process itself is a difficult process, and in my opinion, you're better off nine times out of ten, if not more often than that, going through the mediation process. Yeah, I couldn't agree more on that
3: unfortunately yeah, you i mean, don't so often those in words. these cases you know somebody cheated on somebody somebody is never going to emotionally get over it and therefore mediation because they can't even be in the same room together isn't an option so they you know they can end up with a uh, you know 100 grand legal bill because they can't behave long enough
0: to stand in front of
3: each other to do mediation. And that's, that, that is just
0: ignorant and criminal to to themselves. You're a hundred percent right too, Nancy, on that. That is some oftentimes the biggest challenge that I experience and many mediators experience as mediators is just the animosity between the couple renders it difficult uh, to, to do the process. But I'll tell you once you've done it enough and if you've gone through the training you do learn a lot of techniques and essentially what you are as a mediator is you are in you are in control of a discussion and you have to take and sometimes you have to wrest control from the parties you know you just have to take control of the situation and a few little rules like don't interrupt each other Speak in a normal tone of voice. Use words you'll find in an English dictionary. Uh, <laughs> just little rules little And don't rules use a like few that. that are in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, try to avoid a few choice words. But, you know, don't scream and don't interrupt. If, you know, you can enforce those types of rules in a mediation setting, and you can convince people that this is for their own good that they're here that most people will find a way to even if they don't like their ex or their soon to be ex they will find a way to discuss things with them as i tell people in parenting all the time divorce is great you you know you you don't have to put up with uh, or have disagreements with somebody that you disagree with very frequently you don't have to argue all the time but you do have to do Two things you have to be able to communicate with your ex and you have to be able to cooperate with your ex if you have children and beyond that it's pretty much just communicate and cooperate and that's something that mediation and mediators are trained to help you do in a mediation process is help you communicate and then ultimately hopefully cooperate for a solution
3: now if a couple decides that they want to go through mediation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What steps do they take to do this? How do they find a mediator?
0: Um, well, it would depend a little bit in the, proce- the point in the process they're at. But if they're getting a divorce, usually um, you can get mediators' names online. You can get them from attorneys. Or if you're in the court system, you can get them from the court. Um, the, uh, how I get my cases, I would say probably about equal numbers, come from the court. It's come from other attorneys as are referred from parties. I've been doing it long enough now that if you work with a couple and then they know another couple who are getting divorced, you might hear about it from friends. But this was something I mentioned to you um, prior to the show as well, Nancy, is that, you know, in my experience, I've done this hundreds of times. And in my experience, very few people have mediated. It's a relatively new process that people aren't experienced with they don't know what it's all about and so some are hesitant to look into it but yeah you can go online and find mediators you can talk to attorneys and find mediators or if you're in the court system you can ask it the court system uh, for mediators okay now uh, on your thing
3: on LinkedIn it also says real estate and even oh, though we basically, I you know, do family law, I mean, everything kind of plays into it because you know people own houses, people commit crimes. I mean, everything right. kind of falls into family law,
0: really. So, can you and tell us, a, a little bit, bit about the real
3: estate part of what you do?
0: Yeah, I did quite a bit of real estate in my uh, life, both as a lawyer and I was previously a realtor, and uh, so that's an area that that I handle as well. And as you mentioned it's very frequently part of a divorce, um, you know, dealing with the real real property, real property that's involved. But what would be um, an so example of why
3: somebody would need a mediator for real estate? Let's say they're not getting a divorce and they just want to mediate for real estate. I can, an
0: example of what, what would that be?
3: I'm well, unfamiliar be completely.
0: Inter- interpreting the contract. Maybe they can't interpret the contract. Maybe closing dates, and it's something they want to decide quickly. You know. So, are we talking about mediation.
3: mediation between a a couple for real estate, or between the mortgage All company could, and there could a, be a lot a of reasons. It
0: could, yeah, there could be a lot of reasons. It could it could be a dispute over you purchased the house and uh, got a leak in the basement, and you just want to try to mediate a solution. It could be. Um, the couple is getting divorced and they own real property. And so they're mediating the outcome of what happens to the house as part of the divorce situation. There's a lot of reasons or ways it can come up, but. Oh, wait, I just thought
3: of something like um, couples, you know, who don't get married, but they buy property together. Would that be someone, you know,
0: who would come before you? Um, you know, they could. I actually don't believe I've had that case, but they could certainly. Yep. so an unmarried couple buys property and now they're separating, you're saying, and they need to decide what's going to happen with that property since they're um, not living together anymore.
3: Yeah, I, I, because I've actually seen it a few times where, yeah. you know, I never thought of it until now, but, you know, where a mediator would have really helped because in one saying, you know, hey, I did all this work, so, you know, instead of 50-50, you know, you, know, you right. didn't do anything, you, you know. And then one of the cases, they, well, they weren't even a couple.
0: <laughs> yeah, and you're right, and you see those cases in Common Pleas General Division frequently, And it would be a type of case that could go to mediation. And I suspect will be in the future um, more often. People are becoming more and more familiar with the process of mediation. It's one of the types of forms of alternative dispute resolution that is growing relatively rapidly in many states. Oh, can you explain to
3: everybody what ADR is? Alternative um, dispute resolution.
0: Yeah, ADR or alternative dispute resolution. Are the various alternative methods to resolve disputes that parties have rather than just litigation the traditional dispute resolution method is litigation or negotiation and so there are other methods um, that people now use and they're all termed as a group alternative dispute resolution ADR and it's becoming more and more popular Um, largely because of the cost of litigation. It's just so expensive that the, you know, average person really can't afford to do it. And so alternative dispute resolution is growing greatly.
3: Okay. um, You know what? I want to bring up something just because it comes up so often and, you know, pre 2007 there were so we didn't even discuss this earlier or anything. It's just something I want to make sure I bring out. Is that and especially fathers, you know, were, because they they're more active in protesting, you know, in the old days. But you know, they were protesting against the judges because the judges were not ordering joint custody. But, you know, by statute, a judge is not allowed to order joint custody unless by agreement of the parties. So, you know, I finally got the word out enough that people are not doing it as much as they used to. You know, don't, I keep telling her, don't go after the judges on this. You know, you have to, if you want to argue it, you have to change the law. I mean, the problem is so many people are running around arguing and fighting for the wrong things. I mean, why are you beating up on a judge when he's only following the law, you know, versus doing two seconds of research to find out that the judge (laughs) is hands are tied on this one until we get the law changed so that a judge can order it.
0: Yeah. well, Judges yeah, can in certain circumstances, but the parties have to um, propose shared parenting plans to the court. Yeah, but and, only by, but only by agreement restricted. of the parties. Yeah, you're right. They are restricted in how far they can go, especially if the parties do not want a shared parenting plan. If they come in and they're, duking it, they're having a contested parenting case, or what we used to call contested custody case, and neither one wants a shared parenting, you know, what used to be called joint custody Right. in Ohio, then the court, you were right, court cannot order it. And their hands are tied.
3: Yeah, you know, I always and, wonder how many people would really, you know, throw themselves into this expensive litigation, you know, if not for child support. Because, you know, I mean, who, whoever gets custody, you know, is going to get the child support check.
0: Usually, that's So if, that's if true. you don't
3: go, if you, right. And if you don't, you know, if, if for any reason five years down the line, you end up in arrears, you know, for whatever reason, even if it's a reason completely out of your control, you're looking at prison. So if you don't have, you don't get that custody, you know, then you, you are looking at possible prison down
0: the line. So, I mean, potentially that could be a reason why people don't want to agree to shared parenting or joint custody. Um, but whatever their reasons are, if they don't, that's it. You know, that the court can't order it. It's, yeah, I mean, it uh, seems
3: there are so many different ways that the courts and the, the laws are actually forcing people to litigate who would never even dream of litigating.
0: Yeah, and you know that's very true. I was reading an article recently about how parents, divorced parents, lost their rights. And you know the the point of this article was that we, as a society, we um, don't permit one spouse. If you're married and you have a disagreement about your children. You can't go into court and say, you know, my wife's not raising her children properly. I want her to do this instead, and she won't agree, or my husband is doing something improper because they're married. And it's assumed that their their beliefs in, with respect to raising their children are aligned. But then once you get divorced, all of a sudden it is assumed that your um, you, that your decisions with respect to raising your children are not aligned. It is assumed that just because you're divorced, you have different priorities. Exactly. Well, so even people, if you're
3: looking for help, you can't get it unless you go all the way.
0: Yeah. So with the divorce,
3: you know, it, or custody, but
0: but um, you know the point is is then what you have is attorneys. Under our current system, saying things to uh, the wife, like if you have a two year old, you know, or a one year old, an infant, to the wife, hey, you've got to go all the way because you've got a good shot at this. You're the mother, it's an infant, it's best. You know, a lot of psychologists will say it's good to have a lot of frequent contact with one parent for a young child, so this is a good time. So it's good advice for an attorney to advise a mother to go after that full custody at that point in time or the vast majority of the parenting time. At the same time, it would be good advice on the the part of the father's attorney to say to that father, hey, you can't let her get 80% of the parenting time right now because if she does, and it goes on that way for several years, you will have established a status quo that will be hard to change in the future. So you need to battle right now for more parenting time or to become the residential parent of Right, so children. instead
3: of looking at, you know, because there's the two different, you know, levels, I mean, you're either going for best interest or you're going for change of circumstances. So a woman who's breastfeeding is going to you know, they're going to award her more time, even though she could pump. And then all of a sudden the guy is forced into fighting best interest. Or not best interest, I'm sorry, you know, change of circumstances, because the court gave, you know, the more time to the breastfeeding mother. So now they, 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 what what, what is that, what's the word for the, the two? There's best interest and there's change of circumstances. What is that called?
0: Um, Well, the best interest test is a test that the court used to determine custody or parent who's the residential parent. A change in circumstances is if there, once a parenting determination has been made, if you want to modify it, you generally need to show that there's been a change in circumstances and the modification that you're seeking is in the best interest of the children.
3: Right. What what do they call that? The, The standards. Right,
0: the, <laughs> the standards.
3: Standard,
0: yeah. Oh okay, yeah. I'm, I'm lost on words here. <laughs> yeah, or the factors, but but yeah, it's you know you would think that we as a society would want to encourage people to not litigate and to agree, but some aspects of our system are weighted in favor of the litigation, as we were just talking about with respect to parenting, like a young child. And, you know, it's... Doesn't you know, the guy like, get screwed it, if the woman word, breastfeeds? Say that again. Doesn't the guy get screwed,
3: for lack of a better word, if the woman breastfeeds? <laughs> um, it,
0: well, yeah, he, he can lose, he won't have as much time, needless to say. And yeah, and they're return. always saying all oh, that
3: bonding time in the beginning, you know. Ed, which, you know, I disagree with the bonding thing, because that's trying to, even though I'm a mom, you know, that's trying to say that a man cannot bond with his child because he doesn't give milk.
0: Right. Yeah, I. I, don't I mean, agree I don't think a guy either. is going to be
3: any less closer to his kid because he feeds his kid a bottle. I think they have no, just, I, agree. I think the bonding is there. I think it's the time and not how you feed, whether it comes out of, you know, what, what kind of, where the milk comes from. <laughs> right.
0: But, well, you know, when you're getting divorced, you're, in many cases, the parents are upset at each other. And because you're hurt, because you're angry, it's part of the reason why the court system itself, the legal system, should work against that impulse of being angry and wanting to litigate, rather than encouraging the litigation. Right. And if we were to truly want to do what is in the best interests of children, we would want to discourage the litigation, I believe. I believe that strongly. And so the legal system should, I think, be set up in a way which discourages litigation more than it does currently. If, if I had a complaint about our legal system in divorce court, it's less the individuals involved in the decisions than the legal process itself that they have to follow. It's part of the reason I got out of the litigation and went into mediation. I just felt that the process itself was very cumbersome. You have to follow the rules of evidence. You have to follow the rules of procedure. You know, I have to, it's a great thing because it's what makes our courts fair. But at the same time, it's also what makes our part of what makes our courts so expensive and divorce has become so prominent in our society amongst, you know, all people that we, as a society, I don't feel can afford the cost of divorce and right and we've got to come up with a better way to do it, and I think mediation is a step in that direction
3: yeah, you know what, and what about poor families, poor families cannot go through mediation they can't you know poor oh, yeah, families that ha- have
0: to they have mediation through uh, like legal aid well there um One, a lot of mediators will take either pro bono cases or will. I see what you're saying, though. If they can't afford a mediator at all, there's mediators will take pro bono cases or do them for free or do them greatly discounted, including myself. Um, Also, the court, at least Cuyahoga County Court, I mentioned the uh, mediation department. They had what I believe was their first. About three Fridays ago, they had a, a mediation settlement day in the court where um, and it was relatively small but about eight attorneys um, including myself volunteered as mediators for the day and we were each assigned a case of one of the court cases to mediate it and I think six out of the eight of us were successful in uh, mediating solutions or settlements to those cases And those were volunteer pro bono cases. So there are various programs, but you're right. The vast majority of mediators are, you know, being paid. Like the vast majority of attorneys are being, you know, paid individuals. Right. But there will be those pro, those who will do it pro bono. I think a lot of people have gone into mediation and gone into it because they believe it's a good process. And a lot are the type of people who are, charged not all, but, you know, who are charging on a uh, scale basis based upon, you know, ability to pay or will at least do some cases at a discounted rate.
3: Right. You know what a lot of people ask me? And I, I actually do not know the answer to it, not in my state or any other state. Um, is there any truth to that lawyers have to put in so many hours or whatever or case or anything
0: Pro bono work per
3: year, um, or lawyers, in their career,
0: anything. <laughs> yes, it, it's it's not a law, as, but in the um, in the lawyers' code of ethics, we all lawyers are supposed to do pro bono. Work. Wait a minute!
3: Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Did you just say lawyers have a code of ethics? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a joke. Oh, you are funny. <laughs>
0: Good one, good yeah. one, Joel. Lawyers, yeah, very nice <laughs>
4: Yes,
0: yeah, there is there is something to that effect that uh, lawyers are supposed to operate under. And uh, um, they are, lawyers are supposed to um, do a certain amount of pro bono work. There is not a legal requirement that I am aware of that requires them to do it but they should, and most lawyers do in some way. Um, and you'll see a lot of things, like we're solicited, as the lawyers, we're solicited frequently to, for instance, legal aid will contact us and say, you know, will we volunteer to handle a case um, through, like, what they called concerned attorneys for social equity, or will we donate to legal aid ourselves, contribute to the legal aid to the legal aid society? Well, right, like right, um, financially? Financially, right. You know, okay, if you're not going to take a case, then will you contribute to the Legal Aid Society? Right. And I think there's a large number of attorneys who do, but, of course, not all of them.
3: Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, that comes area. up all the time because, you know, obviously, you know, people start getting online, you know, because they have no money, they have no, no resources, no recourse. They have no way to fight for their families. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and you know, and do so, you know what I keep hearing? And this is everywhere that you know and they call legal aid different things in different states. But so many families go for help and they get turned down by legal aid
0: for financial reasons. I assume usually the usual reason is if they exceed the financial um, requirements for no. We're states. actually talking poor families. You're talking what? Super real,
3: like actual poor families.
0: Food stamps the whole nine yards are turned down. Yeah, yeah, wow. You know, I know sometimes the legal aid wouldn't take cases um, if it couldn't be handled, you know, in a timely manner. So I don't know if, you know, in some um, communities, and Cleveland's a rough community too, you know, in terms of there's a lot of poor in our community as well they might be overwhelmed by the number of cases and but, I mean, what
3: recourse does sure. a family have when that happens? If you know,
0: boy, um, yeah, sorry to throw that one at you. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> not there's, you know what? It's the old saying, you know, if if you qualify for legal aid and you get in, that's great. But if you earn just, you know, it's the same thing with a lot of our benefits in this country. It you earn just above a certain amount and you don't earn enough to pay for the process, but you earn too much to get the benefit. And that is a problem. And there's sometimes not a real solution to it other than to look for those addition, look for one, the attorneys who are willing to do things pro bono or at reduced costs and look for, and that's just a matter of interviewing them and, you know, contact the legal aid and look for the alternative programs that they have. For instance, um, concern, it's called the CASE program, I think they still call what, it, what is it called? Attor- CASE, C-A-S-E, Concerned uh-huh. Attorneys for Social Equity, and that has run in uh, Cuyahoga County, uh, Legal Aid has organized that and put together um, attorneys, volunteer attorneys, with people who don't qualify for the legal aid but who really can't afford to pay full going rate for an attorney and legal legal aid helps to organize that process so there are alternative methods than just going to legal aid you can ask for one of the other social programs that they might be involved in in cuyahoga county they're specifically involved in it and in other communities They might not be as um, physically involved in the process, but they might be able to refer you to the alternative um, program.
3: OK, it's going to be a strange request, but, Joel, I need you you to be on your own there for a minute because I'm going to take a quick break. But Joel's going to be online here sharing some valuable information, I'm sure. And I'll be back with him in a moment. Thank you. Okay. And
0: uh, you know we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and uh, some of the you know the most important things that I thought we started to go into that I wanted to go into more is the concept we we're talking about um, with regards to how divorced parents lost their rights because it's something that. You know, in the court, we don't think about a lot. We take it for granted that a couple appearing before us in court is um, is subject to our orders and as judges and magistrates, and don't really think about how did it ever come to be, and why is it that a court has a right to make those rulings with respect to separated or divorced parents divorcing or divorced parents but not married parents and I think it's something that kind of needs to change Um, that if divorced parents agree on a plan for their children that maybe that should become a factor right now the factors the uh, court has to determine, in order to determine parenting, a court has to make a finding of what's in the best interest of the child or children, and the decision of what is in that child's best interest, the law lists of a uh, list of factors that the court has to consider in determining the best interest of the child, and those list of factors might include things like the parent's mental health, their physical health, the child's wishes, etc., But maybe something that should be done that would be nice to see as a change in domestic law would be that states should add um, parental agreement to the list of factors to be considered in determining best interest and maybe even make parental agreement a primary factor. In other words, if parents agree to something, we would be reducing the court's rights to not Um, adopt the agreement of the parents as I mentioned before a court has authority to not adopt agreements of parents and maybe that's something that would um, we would better be better off limiting and there's arguments on both sides of it but I think it's a way of reducing litigation ultimately and encouraging agreement Um, also Uh, One last thing that a comparison of litigation and mediation has found that mediation um, can cause huge improvements in family relationships years later down the line. And I tell people this all the time when I'm mediating with them, that we're doing more in mediation than just coming up with solutions to the legal issues that they need. We're learning a process. And in mediation, a couple that comes before a, a qualified mediator is learning a process that they can use in their lives because let's face it, you know, there's going to be arguments. We all have arguments. We have arguments, whether we're married, whether we remain married, whether we separate, if we get divorced, there's going to be arguments. And the important thing is how we resolve those arguments. Um, and as, as I tell people all the time, don't ruin a good agreement over a bad argument. And, uh, So that's hopefully the direction that I hope our law takes and the court system takes towards encouraging um, agreements amongst parties and discouraging the right of um, judges to set aside agreements of parties when they're well thought out.
3: You know, one thing that's come up a few times recently is... What's there? Okay, everyone believes that when a child is a certain age, 12-whatever, that they can make a decision on who they go with. What's the truth to that? It?
0: Um, it, what you're talking about is what used to be called the election. And in Ohio law, a child at age 12 could elect who they wanted to live with under the law. Um, and that, I believe, changed in about 1991, if I remember correctly. But it's, it's been decades since they did away with the election. And since that time now, um, what the law states is that any child of any age has a right to express their wishes, thoughts, and concerns to the court with respect to parenting. So if parents are in a contested custody or contested parenting case, and either parent requests that the court, in other words, the judge or the magistrate, interview the children, the law says that my reading of it is is that it's mandatory the court shall interview the children now frequently judges and magistrates conduct that interview toward the end of the litigation with the hope that they don't have to bring a young child into court um, but if ultimately the parties don't sell the custody case the parenting case and the litigation is coming to an end and there's a request that the court interview the children and the court shall interview the children and what and I I was in that situation scores of times and probably interviewed uh, scores of children while I was a magistrate and what you're doing is you're trying to determine their wishes, thoughts and concerns not who they elect to live with you don't ask them that you don't it, they don't get Children under the state of Ohio don't get to choose who they want to live with. They can tell their thoughts about it. They can express their concerns. They can tell why they like being with mom. They can say why they like being with dad. They can tell the problems they have at either house, etc. But ultimately, it's for the parents to decide or the court to decide.
4: Yeah. And
0: um, with consideration of what the child said and generally you're going to put more weight on what a child said the older they are so I don't know if hopefully that answered some of the question the election is gone Nancy but the child or children still have a right to come into court and express their thoughts and concerns about parenting yeah it's just not binding Um. Yes. I think you're I think you're breaking up. Yes. I know I did.
2: Um
0: okay, you're asking what is the time within which cases must be heard? In Cuyahoga County, it depends on the type of case and uh, if there's children or not. But if and it's and it's set by the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court set standards, um, time standards within which cases are supposed to be resolved. And I'm trying to remember those standards. If I remember correctly, for a divorce without children, it was supposed to be resolved within 12 months, one year a divorce with children is supposed to be resolved within 18 months, if I remember correctly on that. Uh, Don't quote me on that. Look that up if that's something you're presenting to a court or an attorney, but I believe it was 12 and 18 months, um, 18 with children, and many times the um, length of time that it takes to settle a case exceeds those limits, and courts do have to report. the Supreme Court the number of cases that they have on their docket which exceed the limits set by the Supreme Court. So no judge or magistrate wants to have too many of those, but most have a couple.
2: Okay, I'm having a problem with my phone,
3: how am I coming through?
0: Not coming through at all.
3: Okay. Okay, we're going to have we're switching how we're doing it for a couple minutes here before we go. Um, just lost my weekly timely fashion. Oh, yep, yeah, you know because a lot of the cases, you know, are going on for up to thirteen years. There's a a visiting judge, assigned judge. I don't even know if she's still there anymore, but she was there for too many years. She was a uh, an assigned judge, which is a visiting judge, and they call them visiting judges in Ohio and the way to become an assigned judge is to have left the bench in good standing. And the
4: only,
3: <laughs> the only criteria for that is to leave without getting voted out. So you'll see all the time that judges are retiring, you know, especially if they see they're going to lose an election, they'll simply retire. And this gives them appointments for the rest of their life. And you can't get rid of a, an assigned judge because you didn't, you can't vote them out because you didn't vote them in in the first place. So everyone's stuck with them and there's June Rose Galvin, I'm gonna repeat that again, June Rose Galvin, who let cases go in juvenile court and then she was promoted to domestic relations court after just grossly abusing, she refused to go to trial and she had all these cases going six, nine, even 13 years but you can't get rid of them. I mean, one of the things that we absolutely have to fight for, and this is in all states, is to get rid of assigned judges. Assigned judges are actually causing cases to last longer, and no one's getting anything done in a legally timely fashion. By the time you get done with your case, I mean, half your witnesses could be dead, moved out of state. I mean, it
2: just,
0: it causes all kinds of problems. If you want to comment on in that. Sure. Um, the, The visiting judge system as it operates in the state of Ohio permits a court to assign a visiting judge and what happens is, is, let's say the judge you're assigned to, the normal judge in the court, knows you somehow and can't, for one reason or another, has to withdraw from your case. Maybe they know you as a frequent reason. So the case can be reassigned to another judge in the court or to a visiting judge. Now, if the Supreme court decides to assign a visiting judge as you were saying, Nancy, the visiting judge is someone who has been a judge in the past generally retired or was not reelected. And so still left the bench as a judge in good standing and is uh, eligible to be appointed by the Supreme court as a visiting judge. In Ohio, you can run for judge until you reach the age of 70. So if you're 69 years old, you can run for judge and get a six-year term and be a judge till 75. But once you're 70 years older or older, you cannot, 70 years old or older, you cannot run for judge anymore. But you can be appointed, it's my understanding, as a visiting judge until you're age 80, and many of the judges are. So many times there has to be visiting judges. There is a you know, very necessary reason if no one on the court can handle it. But I think in general, the number of visiting judges being assigned is being reduced, probably more so due to financial constraints than anything.
3: Thank you, and also guardian ad litem. I'd like to touch on that for a second. What recourse does someone have for a guardian ad litem to have them removed from your case for whatever reason? They're not doing their jobs.
0: Well, there's a a zillion reasons, but. Uh, Tough question. You can ask to have a guardian removed from your case. And it's up to the judge who assigned that, generally the same judge who assigned that guardian ad litem, to remove that guardian ad litem. So right there, you know, you've got a tough road to hoe because the, you're asking the same judge usually to now remove somebody that they appointed. But if you have legitimate reasons, the judge may do it. On the other hand, you got to keep in mind that the guardian ad litem is a very, I think, influential person in most contested parenting cases because the guardian ad litem is kind of... You know, the representative for the child, and they are supposed to be expressing the interests of the child, what the child wants or what's in the child's best interests. And that guardian um, is kind of looked on by the judge or the magistrate as being the neutral person. They know that the mother's attorney is going to be advocating for the mother to be the residential parent and that the father's attorney is going to be advocating for the father to be the residential parent. Well, the guardian ad litem is often considered by the judge or magistrate as that neutral, independent person. They're not a mediator, you know, like a neutral, independent third-party mediator, but they are neutral in this situation, not favoring mom or dad Initially, so when the guardian ad litem makes a recommendation, it's considered that they started from a neutral position and are recommending somebody now to become the residential parent or to have a significant amount of parenting time based upon uh, the best interests of the children. So that person is a real influential person. So you don't want to... You don't want to make that person mad at you, you know what I mean? So if you have a good reason to remove them, then, yes, certainly you'd want to ask them for them to be removed. But it's not the type of person that you want to have against you in your case. So that's the type of step that I would probably say, you know, consult with your attorney before you actually file the motion to remove a guardian ad litem because you want to make sure that if you're filing to remove the guardian ad litem that you're going to be successful. You don't want to have that person against you for the rest of your case.
3: Yeah, I mean, getting rid of a guardian is possible, but it's almost impossible. And as Joel said, if you piss off the guardian, <laughs> you know, the rest of your case is going down. But what we're finding in the majority of cases is that regardless of whether the guardian starts out neutral, and most of them probably do because they don't know either party. Right. But parents cannot claim bankruptcy on guardian ad litem fees. The guardians know they have this protection. Another thing is that guardian ad litem fees, once it gets to around $1,000, then they can file with the court um, an affidavit for extensive fees, You know, giving just cause for why more fees are needed. Now, here's where the problem comes in. Only one affidavit is needed. Once the judge signs the affidavit or the order allowing further fees, it's a free-for-all, which is how, even in my case, one child, one case, uh, the guardian litem actually did get removed, but the guardian litem fees came to over $129,000, and the one guardian that I did have removed, and I'm not suggesting to anybody to even try to get a guardian removed because of the things Joel said. Um, what was it like that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, oh, yeah. I, he, although he went through a three-month trial, blaze juiced, oh, corrupt as hell. And I'm happy to say that because he can't sue me because it's true. <laughs> corrupt as hell, blaze juiced. Oh, got legally removed by the judge after a three-month trial, but he got full fees. It was proven how corrupt he was and all the reasons why, and he still got full fees. And regardless of the reasons why he got removed, valid, he still gets full fees and cannot claim bankruptcy against them. No one can claim bankruptcy against guardian fees. So, you know, I mean, we're stuck with them. And, you know, Even if you do not request a guardian ad litem and the court appoints him, and the court has to appoint a guardian ad litem in, by law, in any cases you know, where abuse or neglect you know, is alleged, even if it's falsely alleged. So, you know, you're stuck with the fees, and, you know, they can get pretty high. I know a lot of cases where they're $40, sixty thousand dollars $60,000, and you're stuck with them. Uh, and as far as uh, the assigned judges, which in Ohio we call them visiting judges, visiting judges, you can try to get them removed, but that's another person who's really going to whack you just because they had something filed against them with the Supreme court. And that is how to have one removed is that you file an uh, affidavit of disqualification with the Supreme court. And that goes to the top of the list. I mean, the Supreme court hears that immediately. And if they do not remove that, the signed judge, you know, why <laughs> so I getting walled the next time you show up <laughs> and here's
0: Joel. <laughs> no, thank you very much. It's been uh... A great evening. I don't know if you have any other questions before we wrap it up this evening. Or, or Dennis, if you have anything for us this evening.
1: Well, we probably could take a quick question from anybody. Um, That's on. Anybody have a question they'd like to ask real quick? I'm seeing here. Okay, Georgia. Georgia 1981. Uh, Well, I'll meet you, Georgia 1981. Go ahead with your question. Do you have a question? About the guardian and the uh, Yes, can you
4: hear me? Yeah, I can hear
1: yes. you. Yes, we can. Our children were removed
2: um, for a false claim on April the 7th. We have yet to been to court yet uh, due to two different continuance. Um, we accidentally received some information that we were not supposed to receive for the judge has requested non um uh, as well as uh, non-reunification with a guardian ad litem. We called the guardian ad litem, who very quickly and abruptly told us he had nothing to say to us and was not in the interest of speaking to us by any means. Um, we've reached out to several people, we both have court appointed attorneys at this time, who are basically. I've told my husband, who uh, does not have a current legal status, uh, that he needed to shut up and the uh, court-appointed attorney was going to deal with it himself. In our research and findings of our uh, court system here in Whitfield County, uh, Georgia, um, our judge has signed over uh, and we have found many different cases where the judge has terminated parental rights uh, in the state of Georgia and our county with anyone who does not have any type of legal documentation to be here or, I guess you could say, illegal people. Uh, my husband is um, not legal. Are you referred to a legal alien? Uh, my husband is, is not legal right now. He does have an open case with immigration, but they are trying to terminate his parental rights. We have not been to court at all yet due to the fact he is not uh, of any residence. Um, And they have now terminated our visitations due to another false accusation stating that the judge has signed these things over. Uh, uh, Basically, the court-appointed attorneys are our own personal court-appointed attorneys, um, are not listening to any of our evidence. They are dismissing any conversation that we try to have. They haven't conversated or contacted us at all. d are not contacting us. Um, and they are going for non-reunification. And we have not even had the first hearing at all. Um, but I'm referring to my husband. Two of the children are his. They are my stepchildren that I have raised for the past seven and a half years. He's been an active dad since the beginning birth of both children, uh, including our five-year-old child. Um, but it really seems that no one is of interest uh, of our children coming back at all. Um, and we are not dark, poor people, uh, but we have contacted some people with um, legal human rights in Washington, D.C., et cetera, with a large amount of different phone calls and people trying to contact and most either do not have attorneys to represent or we cannot afford attorneys Oh, wait a second.
3: I just want to break in to make sure that we're caught up here. Okay. Is it your husband? It is. Okay. And he is an illegal alien, right? Ma'am. Yes. I just want to make sure I'm caught up here on what the the legalities are here. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So he has no legal status there, and none of the children are his biological children, right?
2: All of them are his biological children.
3: Oh, all of them are.
2: Yes. Okay, I just want to make sure we're caught up on, you know, where we're at here. Okay, go ahead. Two of them are my stepchildren. And one Two of them the are one. your
0: stepchildren? Cho- yes. Okay.
4: And one of
2: the children are both of our children together. She's five. There's an 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, and a 5-year-old.
4: Okay. <clears throat>
2: my husband is Hispanic. He's from Mexico. But in 2011, uh, with our bonding, the judge in my county terminated and had taken away um, a Guatemalan couple's five children, due to the fact that they were not legal residents or had any standings at all with immigration. All other children were born here and because they did not speak Spanish. Uh, Excuse me, English. Although my husband speaks English and he's been here since he was eight, They're still requesting termination of parental rights because he does not have any standings with um, any type of legal documents to be here right now. And he does not have a Okay, wait, but you have legal standing. But two of the children are my stepchildren. In the state of Georgia, step parents have nothing to do with the other, with the stepchildren at all. We have no legal rights. Okay, so what's, what, what is the base
3: question or question that you're looking for?
2: You were talking about the guardian at The guardian ad litem, in our case, um, will not talk to us and has no interest in talking to us and had made that very clear. Why? Um, I have no idea. He said, and we have a paper that was attached to some core papers that we were delivered. We have a court paper that specifically said the judge's name, and she had requested the guardian ad litem in non-reunification. So when we spoke on several different times to talk to the guardian ad litem, he refused to talk to me and said he had no interest in speaking with us at all. We also have family members and two different Okay, do you, have this,
3: do you have this in writing or only? Cell uh, um, so
2: Ma'am? Uh, no, that, that the he had no that
3: that the guardian had no interest in talking to you.
2: Is that in writing? We do in text messages. Everything is in text messages on my phone. Our children have also been placed out of state in another state. We also have family members who have been trying to get the fam the children, and the department is doing nothing to make any of that happen. We have numerous texts from two different family members uh, where we are contacting and trying to speak with these people via text message. There are no have response. you brought it to
3: the judge's attention that the guardian will not communicate with you?
2: Uh, we have, and the judge said she requested the guardian, and he's doing his job. He's doing his job by not communicating with you? That was her reply. She put her hand up and said for us to get out of court. It would be continued. The children will removed on April the 7th. We will not go to court until June the
3: 18th. And what is your lawyer saying about this?
2: My uh, lawyer is always out of town, never has time to talk to me. We've been to Uh-oh. the office several times. My husband's lawyer told him to shut up, that he knows the laws and he knows what to do, and was very nasty with myself and my husband, and we as well have those things in different Texas as well. I
4: just,
2: uh... so I'm listening to your guardian at lotum conversation here. Yes, and, and it's again, a very very
3: difficult thing to do. Very, very difficult.
2: Well, you know, and and not, as soon as you well, do,
3: I mean, you're really going to make them mad.
2: It's not just... And I think that that's what we have done. I think that I made these people very angry. Um, um, we went to a visitation after we found where the children were, and the children had bruises. I was able to get pictures of the children with their bruises. I contacted some people in Atlanta um, that were, I guess, um, I'm not sure. They said that they were over the Department of Children's Services. Um, I contacted these people and told them about. Wait a minute, our- wait a minute, wait
3: a minute. Forget Children's Services for a second. Did you show the judge the pictures of the bruises? Uh,
2: she won't talk to me,
3: she won't talk to us at all. Well, why doesn't the. I can't give legal advice, but you may want to ask your lawyer about attaching pictures to a motion and filing it immediately with the court. That's not I legal advice. That's, about... that's saying, you know, you may want to ask your lawyer about this.
2: Uh, we have. I've given her pictures, and I've got two. the only two visitations after we found the children were taken out of the state. We um, we videotaped the whole thing. My son, my stepson, he's 11, told us that they make them, all three of my children take pills in the morning. And my five-year-old daughter, who has an eating disorder, she uh, was born with a very small esophagus, he right, for, you're,
3: you're, 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 no, and I I understand all that, except for the problem is we're on a time thing here because it's radio. Uh-huh. Um but I will I will personally contact you after the show.
2: Okay. But if because you have we, any we, you know, like we, direct we questions so that you wanted to ask Joel I, I do, um, I know I'm not really uh sure, but you guys have really answered a lot of my questions. Joe, uh, you mostly represent Ohio, or is it um, different states that you know the different laws about? No, no, Gov Abuse is nationwide, all fifty states. Okay, I have a question. Anyone has any history at all, or has ever had a child? Um, what about a, a family member filing a motion to intervene? What, one of your your family members is failing in motion to intervene? Well, I'm asking a question. Is that possible if they live out of state? And what is the process? process? My brother that lives in the state of Tennessee uh, called down there, spoke to supervisors in the the court system, and they denied him and said that he could not do that.
4: They also
2: refused to transfer the case. Well, first of all, let me check with Joel here. Joel, anyone,
3: any family member can file a motion to intervene, correct?
0: Yes.
2: Yes. Okay, but well, we've been denied by two different family members. Here,
0: wait, hang on a second. A family member can generally intervene. And Now, again, you're in uh, what state, Georgia?
2: I am in Georgia, but the family member was in Tennessee,
0: Generally speaking, a family member can file to intervene in a case, and I'm not familiar with Georgia law, but can file to intervene in a case, a parenting case, if they are a significant person in the child or children's lives and Uh then they are requesting parenting time. In many states, they used to call it something like grandparent rights, but now it's been expanded from just grandparents to any significant other person in the children's lives could be an aunt an uncle, could be an adult uh, sibling, um, it could be a step parent.
2: Okay. And those. I didn't those make it. Those parents.
0: Intervene. Those people have a right to intervene.
2: Do they have to be represented by an attorney? Do they have to uh, have an attorney, or can they not file that petition themselves? They they don't
0: they don't have to have an attorney. Uh, Most generally would, but they do not have to. There is no law requiring them to have an attorney. They could represent themselves.
2: Okay. And is there anything that um, would hurt that person as to following that motion? And is there an out-of-state transfer time, per se? Uh, My brother has been trying to get the children in his uh, home for about three weeks now.
4: And what was the question?
2: It's been transferred through the ICPC process, but they're saying anywhere between 30 and 60 days.
0: Well, you broke up. Say that again.
2: And they transferred it through the ICPC uh, interstate transfer, um, compact transfer, something, and.
4: Hello?
1: Interstate. Um,
0: you're right, you're right because it's
1: in another state. transfer the case, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's uh, ICPC,
2: Interstate Compact of Children Placement. And okay, they right, saying, but you know what? Um,
3: here, you know what? I will contact you after the show. Just okay. make sure I have your number through my private messages.
2: Absolutely. And I will
3: contact you after the show because they're shutting us down shortly here. <laughs>
2: Joe, thank you, Miss Nancy, thank you, and everybody. We are definitely against nation's protest against these fires, and we yeah, appreciate. Yeah, no problem. And I definitely
3: will contact you. I promise.
2: Thank
1: you.
3: Yeah, no problem. Dennis?
1: Okay. Um. Yeah. Want to add something to that? It, you know, it depends what the statutes in your states are. Uh, one thing that we have seen worked uh, in Michigan is. Uh, for a grandparent or a relative to file guardianship and have the two parties uh, sign papers uh, before their rights are terminated for guardianship. However, what we have seen is some judges will accept it, those that seem to um, not like CPS too well, and some judges will not accept that in their court. So. Uh, you know, it it looks like it de- depends upon the judge, you know, if it, they'll accept something like that, you know.
0: Interesting.
1: Uh, uh, Muskegon County, I know of two cases where they accepted guardianship papers and gotten the kids out of uh, foster care into a uh, grandparent's home. And I know of a couple cases on the east side of the state where the judges wouldn't even take those cases in their court because it brings in it brings into a third party then so right remember the dan quinn
3: case that one went over uh three different states
1: yeah so you know oh it's uh it is kind of interesting uh why one court will accept it and, and and evidently they don't have to accept it of course it probably hasn't been challenged in the supreme court yet but <laughs> Um so you know it, it depends a lot on the statutes of the state uh uh d h s cases here in Michigan, um uh, pretty much the uh contract the agency has to say so where these kids go you know there's the Amir act and they're trying to get the Amir act uh which would be tied into the federal funding that would uh, make it where the uh, contracted agency or DHS, if they are the ones that get the foster care uh, people, that they would have to look at relatives prior to placing the children into foster care. And they're trying to get that to go um, nationwide attached to the federal for funding, so.
4: That would um, be nice.
1: But there's not a whole lot of teeth in it, but. uh, uh you know something- when that's supposed to be heard? No, I I got an email on that day, and I can forward that to you, Nancy, so you can look at it.
3: Yeah, that would be great, and I can put it on the website.
1: I guess it's about time to wrap it up. Any last thoughts? Any last thoughts? No. No, just have uh, George's contact number. Say that again? Uh, Well. Oh, shoot. She, she just went off the air. Over we're off there. the air? Okay. Oh, we're already off? I think. It's Dennis? After we shut down the... Uh... Wait, are we off? Not yet. You want to say something?
3: Yes, I'd like to make sure that everyone goes to govabuse.com and sign up for the nationwide protest, which will be September 18th of this year. Um, we'll set you up with your PLC, Protest Location Coordinator, in your area. Um, if you have any special skills, please include that. Uh, we also have a blog, blog.govabuse.com. Um, you can sign up also for the GovAbuse State Group. You have, to be, uh, you have to be a resident of the state that you're trying to join. We have, like, GovAbuse Ohio, GovAbuse Florida, et cetera. And that's about it. Oh, and make sure you tune in next week, Thursday at 8 p.m. at TalkShoe.com. And that, what it, the information for next week's guests will be under events, the GovAbuse.com website under the events tab. <laughs>